Three, two, one. A word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. If you aren't caught up with us. That would be through chapter 65 of Brandon Sanderson's The Hero of Ages. there this is cross and i'm pj and we are words and whiskey a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike we tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking you should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club crossland missed his cue so i being the better co-host took over his role and he like the dictator that he is decided we had to stop and restart so he had his own words first bastard uh, it- it's true, especially because you introduced yourself as me. <laughs> you ever, you ever like catch yourself staring at something? Like no, I, I was, I was staring at the text and not reading it when it was my turn. You, you know, like all of those movies in which there's an anchor staring at the text that's in front of them that they're supposed to read off the teleprompter, but they just stare there for a little bit too long, like off Newsroom. Favorite TV show? Well, second favorite now, but like staring at it, and they're just like. That doesn't seem real. Like, I can't. I was, I did that. But with our intro, that's the same every fucking week. Yeah. That also happens in Wilfred. It does. <laughs> it does. <laughs> which is another great TV show. That is a, it is a, that is a fantastic TV show of which I greatly adore and only watched because you told me that it was good. But needless to say, PJ, today, is our ninth episode discussing The Hero of Ages by Brandon Sanderson, and we are going to chat about chapters 59 through 65. Before we do that, though, we've got to continue our dry July and talk about tonight's mocktails. PJ, what are you having? I have a homemade strawberry rhubarb rosemary lavender lemonade. And I know that all of those ingredients are in it, don't know like i know there's also sugar and water those are all the ingredients do not know the ratios because kaylin made this but it's really really tasty we have rhubarb that we have growing in our garden we grow rosemary and we grow lavender so we collected all that from our house and then there's lemon juice and sugar making a sort of syrup and then la 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 you know how to make lemonade from there yeah, I, I think that a lot of people don't know that the trick to making a good homemade lemonade is actually making a syrup as opposed to just going straight sugar. And that lets you get in some of these other flavors really effectively. Exactly. Yeah. It's super, super good. So we mm-hmm. made a big batch of it and put it in these nice little handy jars that have little caps. So I've been taking them to work. We've been taking them to the pool. It's been fun. but Nice. Um, yeah, it's not quite a mocktail, but I think it's tasty. I mean, then, I think that the lemonade is often kind of used as a, as a mocktail-esque thing or like a, a base. So, I mean, and it's complicated enough that I would I'd give you that credit. You didn't enough. mix it and do the ratios, but, you know. I could get the rate or I could get the recipe. I should. Yeah. I should know it. Like a punch, like old school, you know, like that would be your, mo- you'd be mocktailing a punch anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, yeah, I'm probably going to snake some water later on but that's what i'm drinking no what about you crossland i 
made a mocktail today. I had discussed doing this you know, the last couple of times, and I did actually get a hold of the spirit that I was thinking of. I think I talked maybe a little bit about it last time, but I have tried two out of the three Mondays or drink Mondays spiritless alcohols, and I think that both of them are great. I do prefer the gin over the whiskey that I've tried, so I decided to make one of the cocktails off their website to kind of be very similar to you to kind of give, you know, credence to like, is this good? Is this right? You know, and is this tasty? So what I brought today is Monday's Gin Cucumber Collins. So how it's made, generally made with two ounces of Monday Zero Alcohol Gin, three quarters ounce lime juice, half an ounce simple syrup, and cucumbers muddled, dropped into the glass as well just for freshness and topped with soda water. I personally had tried this once before. I decided to do 2.5. I think it adds just a little bit more flavor as opposed to two. So doing two and a half ounces there. And it's great. It's it's really tasty. It It does like actually simulate gin really well in the way that you kind of get that botanical hit that you expect. Of course, the cucumber and lime, super fresh. It's tasty. This would be delicious outside next to the pool. Like this is entirely throw it in a jar, go to the pool, hang out, have a good time. Definitely my favorite mocktail that I've had. And I've made a couple with this previously for my dad and whatnot. But yeah, really like that. Awesome. Following it up with some tea, the same Rishi tea I had last week because I monster and i have one of these every time we record regardless i secretly have tea because my throat can get sore and so i like something hot just in case that happens so i have tea once again and uh, water because you know because water all right so with that before we talk about the chapters pj how'd you feel about this week's reading i you know when you're on a treadmill (laughs) and then you like You've got really big feet, so you trip over yourself all the time anyway, and you do that, but you're Mm. on a treadmill, and everything just kind of starts falling out from underneath you. That's the feeling I'm getting here. I'm like, there's shit going down now, and I don't know if I'm ready for it. I I wanted to be ready for it, but yeah, it's speeding up a lot. Yeah, it's it's as though like you you have big feet, you tripped over yourself a little bit and because you're you're getting tired or what have you, whatever whichever way you want to go with the analogy. But then at the same time, your like coach runs up next to you and is like, "Okay, we're going to speed it up." And they put the speed up for you. <laughs> and the incline. <laughs> you're just like, "Oh no." <laughs> That's even worse. <laughs> I'm more likely to trip now. It does. It does definitely have that feeling, that sensation. I, I totally, I totally can see that. Can get that here. So, yeah, our Sander Lanch has has begun, uh, my friend. I ended us in the middle of <laughs> fucking combat, basically. <laughs> yeah, this week. So yeah, a little bit. Cool. Okay, before we get into the chapters, I just want to say, by the time this episode comes out, the list for Era Two. The schedule for Era 2 will be up. So if you want to check out that reading schedule, brace yourselves. We'll be done with all of Era 2 and the short stories by November 14th, by that week, because that's when The Lost Metal comes out. And we're we're going to go at that the week after it comes out, which means that I have approximately four days to read the whole book and get ready to talk about it and schedule it and do the whole thing. Have mm-hmm. to do a very, very dense analysis and prep work in the span of four days in which I usually take 
about two weeks per book so it's gonna be a lot but it'll be a lot of fun so get prepared these books are significant era two is significantly shorter um book to book as well so don't think like i think these are worth basic worth quote they're about one and a half books worth of text comparatively of these last two books so gotcha to give you comparison yeah that makes sense Mm mm-hmm all right. With that, we're going to go into chapter 59. We have our logbook here. I do not know what went on in the minds of the Coloss, what memories they retained, what human emotions they truly still knew. I do know that our discovery of the one creature who named himself human was tremendously fortunate. Without his struggle to become human again, we might never have understood the link between the Coloss, Hemalurgy, and the Inquisitors. Of course, there was another part for him to play. Granted, not large, but still important, all things considered. Hmm. Is that part just kind of being a friend to Vin? Or is that something that we have yet to learn? I mean, do you think we've learned it? No, I think it's obtuse because we haven't. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I think if if we're to point to anything, what's really interesting is that this part starts off with this logbook, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you talk about setting up a, like, promise and payoff or, like, setting up expectations for what we're going to be reading going forward. This is our first text that we get for this part. This sets our expectations to some degree for what we're going to see. So, or what we might see. Right. And then we don't address human directly at all. Mm -hmm. The entire time we read this section. So, yep. Yep. Not even once. No, but we do get hemallergy in the inquisitors. And Coloss in general, though, it's something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it does kind of get this one raised an interesting question for me, too. Thinking about kind of Coloss, Hemalurgy, Inquisitors and the ability to speak into minds, right? And, and have that control because we know from like, well, we have we have an inkling. I shouldn't say we know we have an inkling and an understanding of like Ruin's direct control or influence over people from the way that he inhabits Marsh in the earlier chapters where we saw Marsh kind of going about his actions. I think it's really interesting, like what we're what we're kind of left with. And it does to the point of the Hero of Ages kind of statements. We do have questions about how all of that operates still and to what extent, you know, their humanity is retained or their control in general, especially when we find out that ruin can just rip that back yeah pretty easily later instantly yeah without a care but it does bring up some mechanical sort of questions that we'll get into then i'm sure yeah yeah definitely just wanted to bring that up though because it feels like it ties most directly here so yeah Ted soon arrives in Urto to find it about a third burnt to the ground, but the water has made a triumphant return, filling the canals, you know, and and I think it's great that we get this little glimpse of the city here and feel this moment of victory, even if much of the populace had little to do with it. It's it's kind of a net benefit to everyone, of course, and I also love the brief mention that Tensoon doesn't have a master here as well. I, I also, just to reiterate on the population thing a little bit i guess some people were doing the the heroic thing i mean we even get a little bit of that from quellian later as we come to understand it but it does feel like i always feel like cities are i always feel like scenes like this are weird because you without actually inhabiting a bunch of different perspectives you don't really get what anyone did or if anyone did anything or if they were just like superheroes saved by the water you, you know what i mean like 
there's very yeah. little perspective as far as the destruction goes. Yeah. And I mean, Tensoon is coming in. He's been coming into all of these situations with like, oh, we experienced that a long time ago. So like, it's cool to see his perspective now, but this is like, this is a fresh take for us to see what's actually happened. Mm-hmm. So this is our first glimpse of it, which is kind of different and fun. Not fun. I don't, I don't know why I said fun, but it, it's, it's different and it is a change in the way that we're, we're viewing things from Tensoon's Ten perspective so far in this book, which is nice, I think. Mm-hmm. I think it's the, a great change. Great point. Yeah. The no master line, like you alluded to, and like Tensoon directly made note of. I thought was an incredibly powerful comment and even to more of an extent than what he actually like alluded to just, it it seemed kind of cathartic for him the way that he describes that like nobody could ever understand what he meant by this and that he's the first in 700 years to be out of the homeland without being on assignment. Like that is just saying it out loud seems freeing, doesn't it? In a in a couple of different ways, I think mentioning it out loud and saying I'm free, you know, I mean, Ruin did it right. Like Ruin <laughs> screamed as he came out of the well, too. But there is, I think, something to him admitting, you know, both he, that he's the only con he's he's the most powerful Chandra ever in theory, you know, or the most powerful Chandra alive right now. Additionally, he's without a master. He's without kind of the usual binds of the contract to some degree in the way that he's not exactly treating it as a a faithful document. I mean, I guess he's operating in the way that he thinks the contract he he's becoming less more of an interpretive like reader mm-hmm. of the contract, too. So there's so many different things that are going on for Tensoon that his reality has shifted or that he's shifted his reality that I I love it. I think that, like you said, this is kind of, I think this is kind of a culmination point to some degree for that. Yeah. I'd agree with you. Yeah. It all kind of comes to a head as he enters the city. So Tensoon though runs into breeze and some familiar faces. And we're just starting to see the beginning of the unwinding to some degree of Tensoon's lie about being more sore as everyone else assumed he had been up until this point. And, Instead of referring, like, I think Breeze makes a joke about him being Lord Renew, and instead what we get is, like, he refers to him throughout the episode as a little doggy, or, like, (laughs) the doggy, which is, I think, meant to be derogatory in addition to kind of, like, poking fun, because Breeze doesn't know how far he can trust this Chandra that he doesn't know versus the one that he did know, I think. I think there's a certain element there. I I agree with you, but at the same Mm -hmm. time, I don't understand it. I don't understand why that would be the case because clearly they suddenly just innately trust him enough to like reveal Vin's location and like give him all of this Intel that they've been collecting and stuff like that. Like that to me felt one of the most unearned sort of instances of trust throughout this entire story. And like, we get the perspective of like, yes, this is the same person, but I have no idea why we would think that Breeze would just jump on board with that trust as well. You know, does that make sense? That, Am I tracking? Yeah, no, it does. It does. And I think that's where I prefer like Sazed's opinion on like, well, it just, it, it makes sense for a lot of reasons. I mean, obviously at the right hand was in the room when all these things were going on. Like, I know this Chandra, 
because of that. But for Breeze, I think I think it makes more sense for him to have been maybe more skeptical on on the whole until Sazed speaks up. Mm-hmm. That's kind of my thought, if that makes sense. It's fair. Like Breeze is is more skeptical, but then once Sazed steps in, it starts to become a little bit more even. And I think that's where it goes from like kind of a, a jovial accusation to call him doggy into something that's a little bit more playful near near the end of their interactions in the next chapter mm-hmm. but okay if that makes sense it does yeah yeah and then i mean of course like says doesn't fully trust here even entirely or isn't like it's not even it is kind of he doesn't really fully trust here he trusts more after the reveal and the discussions of Darius religion that we'll talk about in a second Mm-hmm. Or rather in the next chapter. <laughs> yeah. Um, or not the next chapter, but in a couple of chapters. Whatever, you know. So the chapter ends with conversations between Sazed and Tensoon, as we've been discussing. And man, it's short. We find out that Spook is still alive. Of course, this entire chapter is short. There's a lot of kind of short, jumpy chapters here. So we'll be saying that a lot, I'm sure. But we also get hints of what's to come from Tensoon. The the end of the world. And Sazed doesn't even flinch at that idea, which freaks out Tensoon a little bit. Yeah, he says something along the lines of, I'll never understand humans. And uh, no, I think you'll just never understand our sad boy anomaly here. <laughs> I think you're dealing with a broken example. And uh, yeah. But you're right. Sazed's just not receptive to that proclamation i mean it's it's not even that he's not receptive it's like he's a fucking wall and it just doesn't matter like he doesn't even he's not even paying attention no at this point like nothing he needs he needs to be like grabbed and like shaken but that's not gonna happen by the dog because <laughs> the dog doesn't have thumbs but but he does he's able to like stuff his stick and bindle remember <laughs> Again, I think the stick and bindle became one with the spine. <laughs> I think it went went into him. <laughs> right, but it says that he grows his paws to be more dexterous. Yeah, so he can get over terrain. So he can grab it. stuff. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I agree. I just also <laughs> like the idea of like, he can't, he can't shake him because he's like, I can't. I am dog. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, but I get you for sure. All right, with that, we go into our next chapter here, chapter 60. This one, I think, up until this point, is one of my favorite chapters in the entire book. So, lots lots to talk about here, but we start off with the logbook, of course. The prison preservation created for Ruin was not created out of preservation's power, though it was of preservation. Rather, preservation sacrificed his consciousness, one could say his mind, to fabricate that prison. He left a shadow of himself. But Ruin, once escaped, began to suffocate and isolate the small remnant vestige of his rival. Vestige, excuse me. I wonder if Ruin ever thought it strange that preservation had cut himself off from his own power, relinquishing it and leaving it in the world to be gathered and used by men. In preservation's gambit, I see nobility, cleverness, and desperation. He knew that he could not defeat Ruin. He had given too much of himself, and beyond that, he was the embodiment of stasis and stability. He could not destroy, not even to protect. It was against his nature. Hence, the prison. Mankind, however, had... been created by both rune and preservation with a hint of preservation's own soul to give them sentience and honor in order for the world to survive preservation knew he had to depend upon his creations 
to give them his trust. I wonder what he thought when those creations repeatedly failed him. Hmm. Yeah, man. Like, just think about this from the perspective of the author of this logbook. Like, we're dealing with somebody who understands the width of this, like, centuries-long war waged between gods. It is an amazing perspective to be inhabiting. Mm -hmm. I really, really enjoy this. But clever to basically diffuse your own power into something that could use it effectively as opposed to using it yourself. Like that's kind of the idea, right? Yeah. I mean, effectively, if you're, are you suggesting which bit? Are you talking about the well that was created? No, the prison, preservation, about giving the people, the people, mm, okay. humanity. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I was going somewhere with that. Don't remember where. <laughs> yeah. Giving mm. away some of that power. It's uh, makes for an interesting i mean obviously it makes the humans compelling and it's what makes them human right you know human ska terrorism all of them it's what makes them who they are and it also to a large extent makes that conversation between ellen and preservation make a lot more sense as far as can we defeat him being kind of the i don't know maybe because mm-hmm. that's this gambit that they were talking about oh you said gambit no um, he said gambit no i'm just kidding yeah Texas said gambit. <laughs> I'm allowed to say I know, it. I know. I'm just kidding. Bastard. I mean, I gotta, I gotta make fun of you for it though, mm-hmm. while I can, because now that you've said it once, I'm going to say it seven times inside of this episode. But yeah, I, I agree with you. I think what makes this so interesting is that as we've gone through the logbook, we've learned more and more that this person writing the logbook knows so much that we don't. And I don't mean that in like a way that the logbooks are like, oh, there's there's so much there. But it's been gradually showing. I think if you went back and read the old logbooks and imparted this understanding of the deep knowledge and comprehension that whoever this is has of these topics, rereading those, there's a lot more subtext. Like there's a lot more hints there, I think, than than you would anticipate, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. No, I believe it. Totally. But. And But I think that it's really incredible how that just unfolds so naturally as we see the kind of writing grow from this author. Cool. We move to Vin, still trapped in her cell with Haze Killers, uh, with the Haze Killers of Fadrix. She's unable to find any potential means of escape, even trying to break free and getting absolutely demolished just by putting up a decent fight and being as tricky as you might expect with those silver screws from her bed frame. Yeoman reacts, predicting her move while burning ATM and slams her into the ground, however. What'd you make of the man doing the thing? I mean, pretty fucking sweet. Pretty fucking sweet. And I think we've had instances previously where he was clearly burning ATM. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is the first time we get the idea that it's probably the only metal that he can burn. And that gets further confirmed later. But yeah, this this was a nice reveal that he's an ATM misting, which is something that I had forgotten they had explicitly said couldn't be the thing be a thing i just assumed it'd be too rare to learn whether or not you were a misting too rare to test right like yeah. too expensive to test too mm-hmm. like atm is it was a valuable commodity um, yeah. so it didn't make sense to you know not or to even test that like why would you 
I mean, but it'd be like eating a diamond. You can just wait to poop it out and then you can get it back. Yep. You still got to clean out the poop, though. <laughs> like I mean, it's- for something worth thousands of dollars. Right. And is like the cornerstone of the economy. I, I will say that the only confirmation we get that it seems to be the only metal he burns is his own word. Don't we get again, more confirmation later, though? You no, know, I think he says it. And Vin does a lot of assessing uh, to believe that that's the case because she like notices that she wasn't slammed into the ground with pewter and like you know there's there's some small things where she's like i don't think he's a full mistborn and he goes so far as to say it the question is how far can we believe him you know but i i think his point too is that he's been nothing but truthful this whole time which is what happens inside of the trial right rune appears in the room circling around and pacing talking to vin and we proceed to get one of i think the most elegantly executed conversations in the entire novel they begin to talk about vin's intent and ellen as a man seeking the cash and what's inside what do you make of the reaction to both the assertion of ellen's sincerity and yeoman's commentary about the cash honesty and kind of everything else that's gone around here in the circle i think i completely agree with you this conversation is clean it's just mm-hmm. so so snappy, so cleanly written, and elegant is the perfect way to describe it. Yeoman, to this point, has proven himself to be a wonderfully complex adversary. His rebuttals and mistrust in all of the answers that Vin gives is understandable and realistic, and it, it really creates this dynamic, fun argument scene. <laughs> And it's just enjoyable to take in, in every sense of the word. Rereading this more and more times, I, I, it almost got to the point where he didn't actually confirm the existence of the ATM cache. He does right at the end, not directly, but implies it. But like, I, I was going through it this last read through, given that like, what happens later on with with ruin he very nearly doesn't actually confirm the existence of the cash and that's the one point where he's like not being truthful but it's he almost stays entirely truthful and let me find where exactly that is do you know what i'm talking about are you talking oh yeah it's it's the last paragraph of chapter 60 those lumps of metal do me no good save perhaps to keep you in check that's the only thing that he says that technically acknowledges the existence of the atm cash which would be the lie yeah i i think that's totally the point is that he hasn't like he's not really claiming to have the cash or to have the atm and that's mm-hmm. i think that's one of the very subtle things that brand does here is he's able to weave around that very easily without saying it because it's like he didn't really say it it's implied and and ruin is literally so desperate that he is looking for any implication of where it could be right yeah super well done mm-hmm. yeah i mean it just derailed us for like 10 minutes so <laughs> <laughs> um you know and i i think that that makes for a really interesting point i think next up is one of the most kind of elegant debates inside the whole series at least for me the conversation that happens between yeoman and vin surrounding religion this feels like kind of an assertion of the theme of this book yeoman is stretching what he believes to be real trying to make it fit the current circumstances because he's getting kind of secondhand information and dealing with it yeoman really listens 
And I think that's absolutely massive here, even if he doesn't take a response fully in good faith. Good faith. But <laughs> there's there's just a lot here that I think has a lot of direct connotation that I think is really elegantly put from Brandon. Mm-hmm. And it's a little bit ham-fisted in, the, uh, in, in this one very particular point in that it talks about how it's unbelievable that anyone could believe in an unseen, unfelt God. But I think it's kind of important to have that note there to realize how much of a grasp the Lord Ruler has had since he's influenced the entirety of faith for the last thousand years, not only directly, but indirectly by like kind of <laughs> shunning all of the other ones and killing everybody that, or like just killing off all the other religions directly and indirectly. So yeah, a fair bit of world building still happening here, but it, it was a little unsubtle, you know? Yeah. I, it's it's unsubtle because the Lord Ruler is real and physical, right? I, I think what's so fascinating is as we think about Sazed is that the, all of those are the ones that are really missing the connection that are believing in in baseless gods and that it it's so easy. I think what's so interesting about Yeoman is it's so easy to believe something when it's directly presented to you versus something that's distant especially when we talk about the fact that we have ruin and preservation right that are like literally gods but they were unseen for so long and uh, matter of fact yeoman still hasn't seen either of them really physically manifest in any way shape or form right but at the same time you could argue that yeoman's faith in the lord ruler right now is based on an unseen unfelt god yeah yeah but that's not really the way that the religion works you know like the religion is worshiping him yes it's worshiping him but also he's attributing things like i know the lord ruler has a plan for me at this point mm-hmm. and it's just not the case oh sure but he, he's he's filling that void okay this unfounded faith in the lord ruler yeah but but he only has that to begin with because he existed physically. You True. know what I mean? Like yeah. that's that's where I think that ramification is very interesting. And like you said, yeah, like an unseen an unseen god that does become a little bit direct. But I don't feel like it's hamfisted on the whole because of the way that it assesses the idea of these two powers right on the planet and how you know there was a religion that believed and worshipped them and like all of all of these different concepts that kind of circle around in this conversation that i i think are are really great yeah to kind of have these two distinct sides to conversation it almost feels like ellen should be in the scene or like sazed should be in the scene because that would be the right person to argue but at the same time i feel like vin is likely also a great person to have in this scene because her entire arc has been faith and trust. So that's true. Does Kelsier come up in this point? The uh, church of the this, survivor. This is the conversation shortly hereafter where he Yeoman points to her and says, you're the heir of the survivor, right? You know, and, and that, that does come up in this conversation. Yeah. Okay. You Lots know, of religions kind of bouncing around. Yeah, yeah. And and to that point, like Vin has a really important realization. Elend isn't the new Lord Ruler and never has been. She's been the one subjugating kings since the Well of Ascension. She's been the one who picked up the power. She's not Kelsier's heir. She's not the heir to the survivor. 
She's the Lord Rulers. And that is a large reason that Yeomans had to keep her alive to work out this problem, this little issue with his own faith about whether or not this is real. I feel like this is something that I would have latched onto and like asserted mm-hmm. from the beginning and have been wrong about. But frankly, like this never even crossed my mind, especially considering Tensoon's predictions earlier on or not predictions, proclamations earlier on mm-hmm. about Vin being the mother in a way that was entirely like not fully explained. And I remember like questioning that, like, where did that come from? And uh, still never really made any forward thoughts on that. (laughs) Wait, the mother thing come from? Hmm? Yeah. I think the mother thing was much better founded than you're giving it credit for. (laughs) His entire reason was because she, she killed him. Yeah. She fills the position. She has the ability to command them. Yeah. Like the Alamancers of old. I think that's the specific thing, like, in combination that he cites that I think makes sense. Mm-hmm. Fair. I don't think he makes that argument with them, though. That's just kind of in his own head. No, because I think he gets cut off. So I don't think he gets to fully make it, and he's silenced. And then he does get to make a big, impassioned argument, but ultimately is judged, you know, that it doesn't fucking matter anyway. So. True. Yeah. I, I I really love this sort of realization because I, I think it's really it circles back on the thing that we've been talking about with Ellen too, where it's like, oh, you're not the king you should be. You're not you're not behaving according to, you know, kind of the the standard that you set for yourself. And yeah, I mean, he's he's kind of had his hand forced by his equivalent of the Lord Ruler, by the Empress, right? Like she often is pushing the envelope in very different directions than where he would push, but they've got it. They've got a tug a given a take on their relationship on the whole. So it feels like, I mean, maybe the Lord ruler just needed a girlfriend. Probably. He needed someone. He needed something to <laughs> something. literally anything. <laughs> <laughs> Lord rulers will literally not go to therapy <laughs> instead of dating someone. <laughs> to save a thousand years of people in torture no i i just really appreciate this this revelation in this moment and, and being able to finally sit back and go no it's not ellen it never has really been ellen that's been in that position it's always been vin because she's been the maniacal one he's just been the one holding the reins on armies more or less mm-hmm. yeah in political fair. structures i guess but he's like a figurehead she's the knife They can both be the Lord Ruler together. Lord Rulers holding hands forever and ever and ever. Mm -hmm. Cool. All right. So we already talked about kind of the way this chapter ends, which is Yeoman's comments on the cash and the ATM on the whole. But Mm -hmm. uh, any any other thoughts there? It really does make you think like why there would be a stockpile if its entire use, if this whole plan was kind of predicted as a contingency by the lord ruler what would be the point of the atium because of how it's been utilized so far you know yeah brings that into question really kind of ratchets up the intensity of why yeah why why atium and it also like to your point of if it was there like as yeoman says it's fucking useless mostly like it's no longer the fuel or the backbone of the empire so right yeah cool all right with that 
We go into chapter 61. We've got our logbook to start off. I don't wonder that we focused far too much on the mists during those days. But from what I now know of sunlight and plant development, I realize that our crops weren't in as much danger from the misty days as we feared. We might very well have been able to find plants to eat that did not need as much light to survive. True, the mists did also cause some deaths in those who went out in them, but the number killed was not a large enough percentage of the population to be a threat to our survival as a species. The ash, that was our real problem. The smoke filling the atmosphere, the black flakes covering up everything beneath the eruptions of the volcanic ash mounts, those were what would kill the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Understandably, because those were put in place to cool the world down more. Right. Like that, that was the idea was Rashik fucked up and pushed the earth too close to the sun, the planet too close to the, to the sun and needed to kind of blot out the sun to a certain extent. So it cooled down the surface. And if ruin is making the ash mounts erupt more, that's just going to usher in an ice age to a certain extent, much like how them dinos got killed. Mm hmm. Right. Yeah, I, I think the other part here is that our author points directly to the mists, right? And is like, we are a little bit too worried about the mists for a while. <laughs> like, we were we were fixated on the wrong thing. It's It does say like, yeah, I killed people, but, you know, it was fine. It was just <laughs> just a few of them. Just, just a little <laughs> bit of killing. Just, just a little bit. Hmm. <laughs> Totally. So this is a lightning fast chapter in the audiobook. It is seven minutes long. It is very easy to forget that this chapter exists, but it happens. It's important. Like I said, we jump back and forth between perspectives a lot. This is really just a clock in with Ellen before we get to him later, just to make sure we know kind of exactly where he is. So we hop over to Ellen and his kind of triumphant return. Uh, and I, I put triumphant in quotes because it's not triumphant. He just got out of a, a kind of a bad time he you know avoided killing himself which is good <laughs> letting himself be smothered in ash but returns with you know kind of his his new bastion of coloss and the information that he gained from preservation what do you think of ellen's decision to take fadrick's despite preservation's warning against it does it feel like a little bit of, of ruin and humanity that the logbook mentions to you here or like what do you what do you think it i mean it does to to a certain extent, but at the same time, we're kind of blessed with this full scope of the weight of what preservation said to him, whereas he's still kind of struggling with understanding and interpreting. I don't know if I'd put it entirely as a conscious decision to go against what preservation said to attack, as opposed to just, I don't know what to make of this and... I'm not going to change the entire plans of my army based on the furious jumpings of a mist man. Mist man. That was kind of my take on it. Cause he, he is mm -hmm. still kind of struggling with understanding what was actually being said throughout this section. I don't know. Yeah. I, I think that it's a, a fascinating little bit here. It's, it's so hard for him to take the step like to even try to parse what was going on with preservation. Like if you think about what's happening, you had a supernatural ghost, like wave a bunch at you and like confirm or deny things. Like how do you take that on face? Do you take that on face value? Is any of that true? Is any of that real? Especially like to what extent? when you were 
basically ready to give up. You were ready mm-hmm. to just let the ash smother you. You're delirious. You're tired. How much of that actually happened? Right. And and the other the thing that I would tag in there that I, I really think about the most is like with Ellen in particular, I think his biggest takeaway is that someone else gave him the hope to believe that there was a chance to win here. You know what I mean? Like there's a chance to make it away. Okay, cool. I'll carry on because someone else gave me hope at the right moment more than anything else. I think everything else could be chalked up to like, it's, I think it's great for us because we can kind of try to interpret things. But to your point, Ellen's exhaustion, like, yeah. yeah. We also get a little note here that I, I forgot to create a little note on about general was the general from last book that was Straff's general of whom he was afraid of usurping him, who was sent back to take control of Urto. And obviously is no longer in control since Quellian took over. But it gives us this kind of perspective that, you know, Gennaro seems to have completely gone away and his retinue has completely vanished and everything else. Like he's just he's just gone because of the chaos of everything. Yep. yep. It's like a, a threat from the last book. Just poof. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, man. Motherfuckers be turning to mist disappeared <laughs> i don't know that he was turned into mist or anything but yeah no yeah it's it's a fun little it's a fun little bit that i just remembered when i was like double checking something inside of the text and i was like oh yeah general <laughs> that guy <laughs> hmm so yeah okay with that quick chapter 61 breezy easy breezy beautiful cover girl we go into chapter 62 <laughs> we start off with our logbook i suspect that alendi the man rashik killed was himself a misting a seeker Alamancy, however was a very different thing in those days and much more rare the alamancers alive in our day are the descendants of men who ate those few beads of preservation's power they formed the foundation of nobility and were the first to name him emperor the power in these few beads was so concentrated that it could last through 10 centuries of breeding and inheritance. So this is the first instance of mentioning Alamancy existing before the Ascension. Mm-hmm. Um, all it does is make me want to dig in in more of a Sim- Silmarillion-esque compendium to this story. Like, I just want... I want to know what does that look like? What does that mean? What the fuck? <laughs> I thought it started with a boy Rashik and with preservation and with, I don't know what the fuck else. Like, is this on a cycle? Is that like the weak endings of these generations of Alamancy that's starting to finally kind of peter out before being restarted here? Does this happen every thousand years? And like that we just caught the tail end and there's just a couple like weak sauce alamancers left. And it does, suddenly it does there's beg more the nuggies. Question. Yeah, it, I was going to say it does beg the question of like, could there be more more nuggies? Because like the well cycles, like does the rest of the power cycle, like how does how does that work? Mm-hmm. And then again, to that same degree, like there's a question about like if a lendy was a seeker was he potentially a very weak seeker because it had been bred out at that point he was he was a weaker (laughs) nice but like if it could have been bred out at that point or like bred down you know and so Mm -hmm. it's almost not relevant because you just don't understand you know yeah to what degree you even have power so yeah it's it's fascinating i agree with you a compendium would be interesting does one exist 
be fun. Closest you get is a uh, 17th shard. Gotcha. So, I have a feeling we'll probably get something at some point that'll be very documentative and explanatory in a similar way to like an encyclopedia or a world building thing. Brandon has one internally that the company uses that he's he writes and like adjusts, of course, but that's not externally available, of course. And there's also a, a like lore keeper that he has hired to like keep to help him keep shit straight <laughs> and like rules and stuff straight as is necessary with something giant and sprawling. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, I think it exists. I think we'll get it at some point, but it is not currently published. Gotcha. So, yeah, he's got inside of the Cosmere another one, two, three, four, five. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten. At least, I think it's at least 17 more books that he wanted to write. <laughs> Five in the Stormlight Archive. Well, six, including the one that's coming out. Seven, Mistborn. Three and then four. Or four and then three. Three and then four, something like that. Three in Dragonsteel. Two Elantra sequels. Yeah, that sounds right. Anyway, blarp. That's Lots a stupid of books, amount man. of books. Yeah, it's a stupid amount of books. <laughs> and that's not including the four books that you purchased <laughs> oh, right. for next year as well. Yeah. He just yeah. wrote those as bonus stories because he didn't have to travel during COVID. And he was like, oh, I would like to not travel as much anymore so I could write more. This <laughs> <laughs> seems like a legit thing to do going forward. So he's basically put all of that time and effort into his YouTube. Anyway, moving on. We start this chapter standing over Spook's bed, contemplating what happened to the survivor of the flames, and also shows that Sayazid hasn't fully connected the dots yet on hemology, I think. Uh, Quellian also has completely reverted to his old self, looking to help people, shifting dramatically since it was pulled out as well. Spook ultimately, you know, got what he wanted and brought what he wanted to the city. He gave them hope. I, maybe it's stupid. I kind of like that we get says its perspective of like not having this connecting the dots this late in the book mm-hmm. since we un- we've understood hemology for so long it's easy to like get away from like what is the actual understanding that these characters have and like i get to feel intelligently superior to the smart guy you know like it, yeah. it's it's simultaneously grounding and also i don't know smug it's it's fun but at the same time, yeah, this is the point where Spook Spook hasn't woken up, right? No, no, Spook has not woken up yet. That's in okay. the short chapter that comes later. I think maybe sixty-four. Right. Yeah, yeah. So I've got I've got thoughts on that then. <laughs> but yeah, okay. It, it, I I appreciated that we got Sazed sort of not making that connection for for the same reason a few of the other like perspective things we've talked about in the previous couple sections have been in that like it's just grounding to re-remember exactly what's known by these characters because we get a lot of external information in this book yeah yeah there's a lot of external information in the form of these logbook sections so it's it's important that we get these refreshers to be like oh okay he doesn't get that i think the other thing that it speaks to too is i mean beyond the fact that there's a possibility that he just doesn't understand it straight up which is very likely he's also just too distracted to even question some of these things or shared similarities i feel like a a sazed in his right mind probably would have asked or gone to quellian to ask him things and questions about you know his change in mood and appearance and everything else but that's that's not the case because sazed is is very stuck 
Mm-hmm. So Sazed makes the move in this chapter to finish debunking his portfolio in a big way, I think, to get unstuck. And that really tears really tears into these last 10 religions trying to give them their fair shake and their fair due. He gets through them, feels numb. He feels each of their fallacies is very distinct. Their defamations of other faiths and their own as the true faith, fully contradictory. And it, it deeply, deeply pains him. Little quote here. A barb-covered wire twisting around his chest combined with an absolute inability to do anything about it. He felt like huddling in a corner, crying, and just letting himself die. Man, I can feel that. What an incredible description of pain, of like emotional pain. Mm-hmm. It's short, sweet, but one of the best descriptors I've ever read. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Could not agree more. I think that it is... It's really poignant. It points to one of the what, a, a small thing that I want to talk about. Fantasy books are often trapped a little bit because colloquialisms that we would say are like even objects that we know of don't exist. And so like a barb covered wire twisting around versus barbed wire twisting around like you know what i mean it's just it's simple things like that that make fantasy writing i think a little bit more difficult because you have to think of something you have to draw from things that are in context in world in universe versus something like red rising you know we could even explain away certain things because it's like well it happened in a post 2022 earth so it's like it's there it's present yeah yeah i mean it explicitly calls itself out as like our universe you know mm-hmm. like it, it makes references to modern day pop culture things but yeah much more complicated when you're dealing with a distinct universe that's outside of our pop culture and invention realm yeah Right, which is I it just puts us in a very unique spot, and that's mm. super super disconnected from like the rest of this text. But it is just something to bring up is that I think often you know th- something like that is overlooked inside of the conventions of fantasy. So, right, and man, just after that, he finds some of the documents that he and Tindwell had worked on together. He confronts himself on this lie that he's been telling himself that he doesn't care anymore. I think that this is a huge deal that this whole pursuit for him has been chasing his care. It's it's a betrayal of the things that he understands the most deeply. And that's where this pain originates from. To quote again here, if he believed it meant that God or the universe or whatever it was that watched over man had failed, better to believe that there was nothing at all. Then all of the world's inadequacies were simply mere chance. How fucking ironic. Immediately after, or a couple chapters after seeing the death of preservation, we get the this musing from Sazed. I, I, I mean, do you think that was intentionally calling that out, or do you think it was just kind of topical for Sazed? I, I think it's topical. I think that there is some irony because we know that preservation died. Again, this would be dramatic irony because we know that preservation died. He has no idea. So there is that. But I think that this stretches because Sazed doesn't believe in the in the religion of ruin and preservation. I I think we could firmly say that he. That's a good question. That's a good point. Did he ever explicitly like knock this one off the list? No, because he couldn't find it because it's the terrorist faith. Ah, 
which is why right. the, that's the big deal with with yeah. Tensoon in a second, right? So yeah. like he he could never knock it off the list because it was it's the it's the terrorist faith that's been hidden for so long, and so there there's just this this sort of deep irony and moment and i just saw pj's eyes light up as he connected all of the dots here in this section but i i think that it's still a great a great little commentary because obviously we know that this world isn't set up by mere chance none of it is even though it might feel random and abusive and mean to our characters at different times it's obviously all it is very set but it's up on purpose rules. yes on purpose mean you know kill your darlings as stephen king would say so yeah it's a it, it's a it's a great little section, but I, I think it also touches on kind of a, a big world thing with like with a, the questions surrounding faith kind of at large ad nauseum, which is, you know, that some some people have have firm beliefs that like faith exists and then others have, you know, the, the universe is a mere random consequence of different actions at different times. And it's 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 stating a position on predeterminism or like a determined origin point. It's, it's an interesting concept to like tuck into this book too, that I think speaks more to Brandon at the time and how he was writing and thinking than you know, Mm -hmm. a lot of the other stuff has, this feels very poignant in particular as far as phrasing and phraseology goes. Right. So, yeah, this is kind of says it's character climax though. You know, like this is, a a big deal here throughout this chapter this is in a big way a lot of different moments for him especially as we go in flipping through the book we find that flower of mares that was given to her by kelsier you know and our our boy says it is is broken but he sees this distant hope of faith in that flower and doesn't understand why he's been kind of left without it or why he's bereft of it at this point i feel like we could make some really interesting conversation surrounding that flower and the hope that it inspired and now given our understanding of how like through the logbooks how this all came to be and why the plants change colors and everything could this be seen entirely as a lesson in futility like the idea was to go try to restore the earth to the point where we get these green green plants again and Short of going back and moving the planet again, that's not going to happen. Or is it pointing to the fact that somebody could move the planet again and this should be hope above everything else? I I don't know what to make of it. I think it's I think it's more the latter, but I think that it is kind of it is a take it as you will kind of reading i think you you could really look at it other either way but i think in general it's this idea of hope of seeing that dream fulfilled right i think that's what kelsier says is like i decided to see her dream fulfilled fulfilled if i remember correctly and to like see the plants return so i i feel like it's meant to be a kind of a larger symbol of of hope that change could happen because that's what it was for Kelsier or that's what it was for Mare in the very beginning. Then that's what it was for Kelsier and then that's what it was for Spook. And now that's what it is for Sazed. Like the way that this hands down as it goes from hand to hand to hand, I think is important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fair. But yeah, I, I think it's the latter. I think it's I think it's hopeful. I think it's. You know, a little bit here, but I I really appreciate that it's it's here inside of this little section. So cool. 
We then move to Tensoon, Breeze, and Seizid talking about finding Vin. Tensoon calls Seizid the announcer before he begins to pad off to head for his homeworld or home, the homeland, his homeworld, <laughs> before he heads off to the homeland, right? But that triggers a memory in Seizid and he jumps into action, finding the text that Quan had written that he'd transcribed from the rubbing that had been manipulated. And there's this question of how our dear old doggy knows. And our good boy says, it strikes me as odd, Terrisman, that there's one great inconsistency in this all, a problem no one has ever thought to point out. What happened to the Pac-Men who traveled with Rashik and Elendi up to the Well of Ascension? And we put together a big piece of this puzzle. Those initial Pac-Men became the first generation of Chandra. The Mistrates are a creation of the Lord Ruler as well. And, in turn, the Terrace religion potentially lives with the first generation of the Chandra. So, holy fuck. First of all, <laughs> I guess the first generation does still exist. Yeah. That said, in my mind, I had I had believed this so entirely that I, I assumed it was just textual and that's how it was. But I made it up. I'm pretty sure. I thought they all died on the journey back. Like, I thought all of the Pac-Men died and the Lord Ruler was the sole survivor of the journey. Was there anything that said that? No, I think I think the lie that everyone was tricked by was that they were turned into nobility. I didn't even... Because they were the I, first Alamancers because they were subservient they were his people yeah i i i knew that but, but just in my head that, was that wasn't even the in my head that wasn't even the companions that were just like his friends which were home. these okay yeah sure like, <laughs> like yeah genuinely in my mind everybody had died like they were on the fucking on Everest and there were just bodies of frozen people in the wake of Elendi. oh they lost a lot of people on the way up yeah so that was for whatever reason, like I didn't even buy into the lie because I had just assumed everybody died and he just like, yeah, these are my crew. They're getting, they're getting Alamancy. Let's go. So yeah, this was a double fun realization that I was just wrong the whole time. But this does bring up for me a question that I feel like I've asked in the past and never really got a straight answer on or I forgot. Maybe I got a straight answer and I forgot, which is entirely believable knowing me. Why was Ruin able to change the metal mines, the copper mines, like the, the copy of the of everything, like the copy of Elendi's logbook, all of it was able to be edited on the copper mind as well. Is that does that have something to do with the fact that it can also be degraded? So it's not like actually imprinted on the metal. So that's not a degradation, right? So Elendi's logbook was not written in metal. It was written on paper. And so we, I, we find that in a journal. That's, that's what I'm talking about. How even Sazed's copper mined copies mm -hmm. of what, what was being written and being edited was also being edited on that. Yeah, that was, that was Quan's, right? So, that's what I meant. Sorry, yep. that's, what, that's what I meant. Not Elendi's, I just want to clarify. So Elendi's yep. was paper to begin with. It was manipulated from the beginning to kind of lead us in the direction that it wanted us to. And then the important thing with this isn't that metal mines themselves can be manipulated. It's that when you have to take the memory out and then write it down, because that's what the keepers do specifically. That's when it's vulnerable. It's not the metal mine being vulnerable. It's the text after you've taken it out of your mind to write it down. Okay. Because that's, that's what they do specifically anytime they access one of those things. 
Gotcha. I was thinking, so he, he has to write it down in order to access it? No, but he does because he wants to put it away so that it doesn't degrade. That way he has longer term access to it. Gotcha. This was explained okay. near the end of the Well of Ascension um, yeah. in a lot of detail. I just I thought there was a point where he was going through and like opening up his metal mind and referencing because you take it out and it's fully out in your brain and then you write it down and then you put it back. So like what whatever he's writing and transcribing, he might be reading it again and then flushing that shit back. And that's what's messing it up. Gotcha. Okay. so it's it's opening up that to the corruption. The metal mind itself is not accessible. Gotcha. Yeah, Um, but it's fascinating. It it leads to a really interesting, you know, place. It does. And it is. Yeah. But man, this reveal is the one that got me the first time for sure. Like, this is the one that I just like almost punched myself in the face. I was like, you dumbass. You weren't paying attention to that. And because I I also don't think I had figured out the earring quite yet at this juncture. No, I had. Never mind. You, you figured that out when like ruins wandering around, you know that it's kind of, you assume it's the earring like you can. Mm-hmm. Th- yeah. But this was a big one. This was like a big one where I went, of course, of course. And of course they would be old and they would be weird and they would be like, duh, duh. And of course the Lord ruler wouldn't want other terrorist men to have the power of Farrakemi, duh, because like then that prevents them from like if they had the power of alamancy they could compound and live forever like he could you know there there are all of these different things that just make sense it does make for an interesting question about the mistrates though like those were the ones that didn't choose to or like how or where did all of the rest of those mistrates come from it's kind of a, a fun question that is a fun question it's also a terrifying question and i don't want to know I mean, fun, fair point fair point so that of course leads us to our final note in the chapter which is where says it leaves that of the terrorist faith the faith that he saw for this entire series not being dead because he can go to the first generation like i mentioned in the last little bit but you know that's where the chapter itself ends yeah i'm excited to find out do you think yeah. they're going to no you know i don't well, I, I mean, you think run out, run your mouth. That was aggressive. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like there's going to be something problematic with just giving information to say because otherwise they would have maybe done more to share, but they're old and weird. And like you mentioned, what, what do you stuck. mean? Problematic. What do you- I guess they're not just going to be says it's not going to show up and they'll be like, oh, yeah, sure. Let's share all the information that we've got. Like there's going to no, be no, yeah. a problem there. <laughs> right, right. Not only will, they, will there be, I think, a problem there, as you can imagine it, but like Tensoon didn't leave on good fucking terms. <laughs> no, Tensoon uh, absconded. <laughs> yeah, literally. <laughs> just <laughs> ran away. <laughs> yeah, so I, I just... You know, <laughs> it's another small thing. Oh, man. Okay. So we get to chapter 63 in the logbook. Yeah. Rune tried many times to get spikes into other members of the crew, though some of what happened makes it seem like it was easy for him to gain control of people. It really was not. Sticking the metal in just the right place at the right time was incredibly difficult, even for a subtle creature like Ruin. For instance, he tried very hard to spike both Elend and Yeoman. Elend managed to avoid it, and each time, as he did 
on the field outside of the small city that contained the next to last storage cache. Ruin actually did manage to get a spike into Yeoman once. Yeoman, however, removed the spike before Ruin got a firm grip on him. It was much easier for Ruin to get a hold on people who were passionate and impulsive than it was for him to get a hold on people who were logical and prone to working through their actions in their minds. So I'm guessing that that instance with Yeoman was before the one with Penrod because he, he learned like, shit, they're just going to take it out. So he's got to like build in a reason for it to not get just removed by somebody super logical. You know, most people would say, no, I don't want this stake in my heart. Please take it out of my body. Which is why he puts it in the heart, you know, to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think that that was learned after the failed attempt on Yeoman. That's my guess. I think that tracks. I think that that makes perfect sense in terms of his behavior so yeah totally i do like just imagining a very sneaky ruin just obsessed with stabbing people (laughs) (laughs) shit (laughs) fuck missed another one yeah that'd be kind of a fun fun little side journey for everyone to go on yeah So we go back to Vin and she's trying to interrogate the why out of Ruin, but he's fully ignoring her at this point. They swing back to the Lord Ruler, which I think is interesting for the record. He's ignoring her because he's not there. He's with Marsh, right? Like he's he's got to be away, less focused. He can be a little bit more general, but he's still kind of within the realm because Marsh is getting closer at this point. So. They swing back to the Lord Ruler chatting about him and his legacy. I find it interesting, the concept of the Lord Ruler rejecting Ruin, and it shows that he was really a man of preservation much more than he was of Ruin. I find it fascinating that Ruin specifically says that he is a tool for change, because in a big way, he's right. You know, like that's that's kind of his whole his whole deal. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'd say it's even more than in a big way. I think it's entirely just he's right. That is his nature. That is the entire point of his being and as evidenced by the fact that when he was locked away, nothing changed. So it brings some more tangible proof to the idea that nothing can change without ruin. Yeah, right. It's, it's very much, I mean, he is in many ways entropy, but not entirely like he is, he is all things change. Even if, even if you're like talking about a small thing of ruin, like that's important because it's a small change that could be made versus sort of stability perpetually. So Mm -hmm. we go to Vin hailing the guards to talk to Yeoman and exchanging information. She knows that she's willing to give it freely and does so in an attempt to show that she has nothing to hide. She wants to save these people, and she claims that she was intentionally led here, and specifically to Yeoman tugging on his faith, you know, with the Lord Ruler saying that I needed to be here. Like, I I was led to you specifically. I really appreciate how she's using this information that Rune is giving her to personify the fact that she she's this replacement of the Lord Ruler in his mind and kind of manipulating and pulling on that heartstring as much as possible throughout the scene. Yeah. I'm... I'm hitting conspiracy theory brain a little bit again, okay. like as as I'm one to do, wondering how much of this is also just directly ruins influence in a small way, planting mm-hmm. that seed in her. And that's kind of where I'd like to bring up the, I know we, had, we just had this conversation about Tensoon and heralding her as the mother because she killed the Lord Ruler 
and took his place. Like, could that be not quite as founded as he seems to make it and is a manipulation by ruin because he is a creature of ruin, therefore probably entirely able to be fully controlled by ruin perpetuating that story. I, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with it, but it feels like another twist that could be made. Yeah. Yep. Maybe that is, I mean, the, the thing with, with ruin and with thinking about Tensoon in particular is we know that the spikes are there and like the spikes are specifically of ruin. And while we, we do have an understanding that they're almost seemingly very weak spikes comparatively, we don't know to what extent, what does that mean for the power and influence of ruin? Yeah. So yeah, so is Vins. Vins is weak as well. So yeah, Mm -hmm. it leads to some, some interesting places for sure. Vin talks about like the ground and like earlier on in the chapter talks about a lot of different components here with with ruin in the conversation that we were kind of talking about a little bit earlier. She almost like ascertains this idea or like points to this idea that he might be a person like an actual person. We saw a body fall out of preservation. What do you what do you think? I mean, I think he'd probably be a similar form to preservation. I think they'd be at least on fairly equal terms to begin with. Sorry. I mean, I would agree with you. I would say that they are ultimately likely, I mean, equal terms, I feel like is a very, you know, dodgy way <laughs> of getting well, around that. What do, you, what do you assume both of them are? Like, where, where where does your mind go with either of them? Oh, I think Ruin's a woman. Okay. And I think they dated at one point and they got really pissed at each other. Ruin and preservation dated. Yep, they decided to make this far off world their their playground, their battleground. I know I'm. I think it's pointless to gender them, but it had been like preservation was at one point. So I'm not. Yeah, I'm not even putting anything on that. I I just do. I'm imagining a sex dungeon. To be honest, you said (laughs) far off world as their battleground, and first instinct was sex dungeon. I think that's how it started. This thing. You think that that's how it started, and then mm-hmm. <laughs> got a little bit too much, and preservation locked them away. <laughs> he forgot the safe word. Forgot the safe word for sure. Forgot the safe word. Good call. I'm keeping that as a prediction. <laughs> we'll talk about it in two weeks. <laughs> oh man. All right. I love the scene here with a map painting out the economy of the empire itself. They begin to search for a pattern in where these cities are located and they're all built on or near metal reserves. But the way they're communicating this information through this physical map and ruin sees that map. And so she begins to silently piece together information, isolating her thoughts and herself as much as possible from that influence going forward, having realized the mistake that mistakes that she's made in order to try to win yeoman over at the same time as trying to work out what to do about ruin. So I think I missed some of the explicit points there when I was reading it because I had taken it as like she was just kind of mumbling to herself, but still saying it out loud. But I think I'm wrong. I think she was actually being silent. Is that the case? Yes. Predominantly for most of this, she's completely silent. 
she's very particular about what she says and what she doesn't says say, but she does kind of like bounce back and forth thinking about what she should be saying out loud and what she should be holding in, which is rare and different for Vin. A little bit more impulsive generally with what she says. That's true. She very much so is more impulsive. That was another thing that I don't remember where it got brought up, but it got brought up a few different times talking about how Ruin preferred people that were very impulsive and less logical. And Vin and Ellen very clearly impulsive people and well not not so much impulsive but trust your gut kind of people which in essence works in the same way because being able to influence their gut feeling that they trust innately is the same as just influencing an impulsive decision i wanted to bring that up somewhere don't remember where but it's here now. I, I mean, I yeah. think that that's a good point, though. I would I would argue a little bit that Ellen is less impulsive, but he does trust his gut. He thinks about it a lot more before trusting his gut, I think, than Vin does at the very least. That's he's got a true. better gut biome, so he also is just on a different level, you know? <laughs> he's he's drinking that kombucha every day. He's built different. <laughs> it's that booch. Got to figure out Ellen's booch recipe. Uh, do you think he flavors his kombucha? With ash, yeah. Ah, all right. <laughs> Ash-flavored kombucha, come on. Who wouldn't do it? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I fruit up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, Simultaneously, the worst parts of kombucha and cigars just blended together. <laughs> Great point. <laughs> terrifying, terrifying, really. That said, I actually really enjoy unflavored kombucha. <laughs> like Unflavored kombucha? Yeah, like not fruited. Oh, I've never had unfruited kombucha. I don't think. No, it's just I don't think that I have. Fermented tea. Yeah, I mean, I like tea. Fermented tea would be probably pretty good. Yeah. Yeasty tea. <laughs> All right, let's continue. <laughs> Yeasty. <laughs> anyway, okay. Fuck you. <laughs> that one was good and you know it all right. <laughs> yes all right oh god okay i'm gonna recover but then the doors burst open and an inquisitor walks in and the obligators bow to it including yeoman and of course it's marsh marsh this tool of ruin is here to mess up the plan and collect the atm but then there's no yell from ruin and he evaporates from ruin and becomes a black mist as vin pushes into his mind that's here right wait wait a second i mean I losing my mind? yes that's that's here oh yeah yeah, yeah. sorry reen melts into ruin not marsh for some reason my brain was jumping forward but when there's the revelation that there isn't any atm here he dissolves and freaks out ruin does marsh physically reacts as well but it's it's interesting to have these two different kind of pieces of the conversation be going on in the same room at the same time as vin sees i love how even this late in the story we're being drip fed information and i am gobbling this shit up Mm-hmm. Like just little by little, we're we're understanding the actual limits of what Ruin is able to know, and additionally, we're able to understand that he's able to lose form when he has some sort of outburst, which tells me he's like concentrating on maintaining the form of Reen to some extent. Maybe that's 
insignificant and tiny, but it's something like, it's something that he's relinquishing when he like has a sudden outburst of anger. I don't know what that means or if there's any actual useful implications of it other than the fact that like, he's not as calm and collected as we're made to believe, but that dark swirling black grossness before collecting itself back in Doreen was pretty terrifying, huh? Mm -hmm. You know, one of the, one of the things that I questioned inside of the scene too is why Yeoman doesn't yeoman doesn't question marsh and i realize that that's a question of faith and his faith in the lord ruler and the regime and the idea that these inquisitors are the high priests right but like how does marsh know that you told the girl earlier that she has the atm like why isn't he asking that question you know the lord ruler told him i don't that's not what that's not what marsh says though marsh doesn't there's no retort there's no there's no <laughs> no he can believe whatever whatever he wants no i i agree <laughs> yeah that's a little odd but um Mm -hmm. what i think is really funny is that these obligators are bowing to the inquisitor when like one of the last things that the lord ruler did was put the inquisitors at the at the top of the hierarchy above the Mm -hmm. obligators it's true yeah so it went from the obligators holding all of the important information to the inquisitors at the very end which seems to again be another influence of ruin likely in those last days you know, him just kind of hand waving it away because he's like, whatever, it doesn't matter. We're we're too close to the well coming back for me to worry about this petty bullshit. And I think that's why he gives up on it. But mm-hmm. now that we know kind of the whole story behind the well, that adds a little bit of context there. Yep. To that decision. And killing Tintikiel, Vin's father. Yeah. Sounds right. There's another little thing here that happens shortly thereafter is, you know, kind of screams and melts and other things like that. Marsh says, but you are doomed. Yes, doomed indeed, which is a great callback to the first book when the Lord Ruler suggests the end of the world is coming, you know? Yeah, almost explicit. Like he uses the word doomed as well. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure he says something like you don't know what you've done. You've doomed yourselves. That's or something it. like that. It's it's pretty close to that. So yeah, it's ah man, he was he was so close. He was so close to being able to do something against Rune. And now Rune is here bringing doom. And you know, I I think what's so great in the in the reality here in this moment is that some part of Ruin must have been there in that moment to know to recite this in front of Vin to call back to it. And I think at the same time, there's a part of the Lord Ruler that knows that this was orchestrated by ruin to kill him, you know, like I think in his dying moments, he's not looking at the little girl who killed him. He's looking at the God in the background who is likely standing there waving, <laughs> as he ta- you know, or, or at the very least, you know, inside of his consciousness in some small regard. Yeah. Through the hemological spikes. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm. It really does <laughs> twist that fight scene doesn't it mm-hmm. it really well it, it changes the context of the entire first book right like we're actively working to like pull down this empire where the the bad guys won right and that's kind of the perspective but in reality the bad guys were a force for preserving you know preservation strictly but like keeping them alive so mm-hmm. yeah yeah trying to be unchanging 
uh, we end this chapter with two different moments of faith. Yeoman's faith is shattered by Marsh's reveal that the truth that Vin tells about the death of the Lord Ruler and about what's to come, as well as Vin placing her faith in Ellen that he won't attack. Yeah, I get that Yeoman really hasn't been in the, this story for very long, but God damn it, does Branderson do an amazing job of building up these characters so fucking quickly. At this point, I really do feel for him. I really feel for the loss of his faith and the shattering of his internal like understanding of what's been going on the last couple of years. Like, it is crushing <laughs> for this man that a few chapters ago we had really almost no interaction with. Like, it was a couple weeks ago that we met him for the first time, that ball. Yeah, probably three or four weeks ago, something like that. Wild, 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 wild. It's crazy because he's also, for a majority of this book, I mean, he's not the primary antagonist, but he is a Deutero antagonist, or he's, you know, another a secondary antagonist for the story, as is Quellian, right? These two, these two humans, and then we've got Ruin. And that just makes for such an interesting backing to also be so emotionally, not necessarily invested, but to see a depth of emotion from this character and to basically be able to go like oh well he is just human like he is unlike straff venture of whom was firmly just a piece of shit who had no redeeming qualities or even even zane of whom was you know was a little bit more relatable but just kind of twisted and corrupted or the lord ruler of whom we know like yeoman's the most gray of all of the villains because really he's just trying to do the best he can yeah i want to know still speaking of how did Zane end up with that spike in his chest? That's a big fucking spike, dude. Yeah. Failed mm-hmm. Inquisitor. Yep. Yep. Who knows? Who knows? Mm-hmm. Spike, though. So with that, we go into chapter 64. Really, really short chapter here. Logbook. One might notice that Ruin did not send his Inquisitors to Fadrix until after Yeoman had, apparently, confirmed that the A-Team was there in the city. Why not send them as soon as the final cache was located? Where were his minions in all of this? One must realize that, in Ruin's mind, all men were his minions, particularly those whom he could manipulate directly. He didn't send an Inquisitor because they were busy doing other tasks. Instead, he sent someone who, in his mind, was exactly the same thing as an Inquisitor. He tried to spike Yeoman, failed, and by that time, Ellen's army had arrived. So he used a different pawn to investigate the cache for him and discovered if the ATM really was there or not. He didn't commit too many resources to the city at first, fearing a deception on the Lord Ruler's part. Like him, I still wonder if the caches were, in part, intended for just that purpose, to distract Ruin and keep him occupied. So I feel like that brings into question a lot of what we actually know. Like, who is this same as an Inquisitor, but not... That was tried, like, is he saying, is that what he's saying about Yeoman? Because he's an obligator, very similarly, like, entrusting his faith to the Lord Ruler, blah, 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 blah. Like, tried to spike him and failed. Or is it somebody else entirely? I, I'm not sure what he means by that. Or the investigation by somebody else. I don't know. I, I feel like I'm confusing myself right now, and I'm not sure why. I think you're digging a deeper hole than you need to. The the person writing this logbook is very explicitly dancing around a name. And that name 
is Vin. <laughs> Very clearly. Okay. Because Vin was the one who investigated the cache, right? Right. Was the tool at which was used to expose because he could speak to Vin through through the earring, as we've discussed, through the hemological spike, right? Right. Okay. Yep. So You're right. This I was is, digging way deeper of a hole than I needed to. I mean, and and to be fair, I think that that's kind of the way that this is I mean, I don't I don't know if it's intentionally trying to mislead you as heavily as you're misleading yourself or were misleading yourself. But I think that it's dancing around the name because it's keeping a name on the list for who this logbook writer is. That's true. Because why would you refer to yourself in the third person that way? But why wouldn't you just write Vin? Because I feel like Vin has been mentioned in the logbooks before. Why would you write about yourself in the third person that way? I don't think Vin has. Mm. Unfortunately, there are too many for me to search easily. Actually, I might be able to. No, it's okay. I'm going to look this up in the background while we continue forward. Because I I thought I had entirely like written off Vin as an answer because, well, one, because I'm still just convinced that it says it. But two, because I, I thought it mentioned both Vin and Elland by name at certain points. I'm pretty sure it only mentioned Elland. Yeah. Cool. So very short chapter. We're finally back with Spook and the man. Man, he is in rough shape. We open up this chapter with Spook in a dream saying that he must send the message. I love that we get this sort of hospital scene with all of his friends around him as he wakes up. Breeze, Beldra and everyone trying to make sure that the survivor of the flames is okay. I'm conflicted by this. Because, like, obviously it's a great thing that he survived that last trial. But I really do feel like this would have been a, that would have been a nice poetic end to his story. Because he got everything that he wanted. He, his character arc was so perfect and it was, it ended in a point of martyrdom. It was just beautiful. But now it's not the end anymore. But at the same time. He's the survivor of the flames. He survived the flames. So, you know, there's that. Yeah, I I think that it's so it's so deeply interesting that this makes him the real survivor of the flames as opposed to his previous, you know, saving. Although there was one attempt very early that he did on his own. This just again reiterates, you know, I, I think he he did a hat trick of surviving the flames and making his way through. So, right. Yeah, it's true. It's I, I really enjoy it. I think that it's it's great. And I agree with you on the co- on the conflict, because while it would be excellent to have, you know, a, a serious character death just to have. I, I mean, and, and I don't mean that I think that it imparts more meaning, but I think that it would complete his arc in a very satisfying way to have him die. I think it just says that Spook, maybe there's more to come for Spook. I, I think that that's often the way that Brandon would lead something like this is like you die when you're worthless to me or like when it makes the most sense for the plot to like have that happen. But this isn't Mm -hmm. the end for spook perhaps. So of course the second thing to talk about in this chapter is the control that was being exerted on the citizen and spook spook instructs Goridal to bring him a metal plate so that he can inscribe a message with the hope of helping save Vin's life and Goridal himself will run it to her, which is just a fascinating full circle. Like it's a fantastic full circle moment mm-hmm. for this man. And we, we get a pretty explicit rationalization from Goradel on why he would run it there. Right. Like talking about how she saved him. I can't remember the, the exact terms that he used, but 
it was a very nice full circle moment, even though we've had full circle moments with him being the savior of things several times over. This one feels doubly meaningful, I think. Yeah, it it is doubly meaningful. It's It's just it's this like he's been so critical in this example of. I mean, he hasn't been critical necessarily, but he's been all over the place and he's been important. And it's just this this idea that like Kelsier was wrong in his approach and it's just paid dividends since the very beginning in this winning of faith. You know, it saved her very early on and now it's going to save her again at this point with that delivery of information and kind of as much and how much information that might be. So, yeah. And to the extent that that connects. So, because obviously I don't think Vin's worked out the fact that the spike is connected to her appearance of Rune and Reen. She's just connected that Rune and Reen are the same. Yeah. So this is that final dot. We've connected it though, because we have enough context and understanding from Spook's point of view that we're like, oh shit, well, this is obvious. Well, and the, like, even before that, the logbook talking about hemolytic spikes and how it yeah. augments piercing copper clouds. Right, right. And there are different pieces to kind of put together there for sure. The thing I do want to mention is I did look it up. There is no mention of Vin in the logbook. Okay, cool. Yep. Hmm. There you go. With that, we end the really short chapter 64 and we go into chapter 65. We've got a logbook here. Ooh, she's a long one. All right. In those moments when the Lord Ruler both held the power at the well and was feeling it drain away from him, he understood a great many things. He saw the power of Ferrochemi and rightly feared it. Many of the terrorist people he knew would reject him as the hero, for he didn't fulfill their prophecies well. They'd see him as an usurper who killed the hero they sent, which in truth, he was. I think over the years, Rune would subtly twist him and make him do terrible things to his own people. But at the beginning, I suspect his decision against them was motivated more by logic than emotion. He was about to unveil a grand power in the Mistborn. He could have, I suppose, kept Alamancy secret and used ferrochemists as his primary warriors and assassins. However, I think he was wise to choose as he did. Ferrochemists, by the nature of their powers, have a tendency towards scholarship. With their incredible memories, they would have been very difficult to control over the centuries. Indeed, they were difficult to control even when he suppressed them. Alamancy not only provided a spectacular new ability without that drawback, it offered a mystical power he could use to bribe kings to his side. Lots of really, really cool stuff in that, not least of which is a further explanation of why the lord ruler did the terrible things to his people that he did and that's i don't know man fucking ruin wash my hands clean to that shit it was all ruined it i joke but in truth that makes a ton of sense mm-hmm. um imagine what things would have been like without alamancy as prep like if alamancy and ferricomy were flipped that would have been fucking wild Mm-hmm. it would have been it would have been really crazy it would have been very very different because ferrochemy is interesting because it's like you have to like sit still in order to store speed you know you have to like walk slow for a long time you have to spend more time sleeping you have to spend time sick to like store healing like there are all kinds of interesting implications yeah but also everyone's on level footing like there's no ferrochemist that can only use copper or anything like that like, right everyone can access everything mm-hmm. so yeah 
Everyone's got full capabilities. Mm-hmm. So far as we're aware, you know, again, but I don't think that there's any, there's, there hasn't been any indication other, otherwise. So, yeah. The one thing I could think of would be the ability to use somebody else's metal mines. What do you mean? That would be the one thing that could set, set a Farrakimist apart from others. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Their ability to use a different metal mine or yeah, the ability to use any other metal mind. Totally. That makes sense. All right. This is our final chapter of the week. We got a bit to talk about. It's kind of fast paced, but we'll we'll go as it goes. So I love how this chapter begins with Ellen and Ham and Ham really makes a statement about not going on a rampage now and doesn't explain. It's a nice note of character driven humor to not see him be overwrought in this moment. And they both agree and have the soldiers pull back from their anticipated siege that they were about to go on. Yeah, I like that, too. And what I really liked about it was the fact that Ham was genuinely surprised that Ellen silently came to this like same conclusion that he did, but still like there's just so much that goes unsaid, but is understood between the two of them. And I don't know. I think they're, I think they're both starting to face the weight of everything that's been put on them. Whereas before I feel like Ham would have first of all spoken up and second of all, if he hadn't, he would have made comment about Ellen's decision-making process and the fact that 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 isn't necessary here was kind of a kind of a depressing realization of how much is like burdening them, (laughs) you know? Right, right. How much these different choices are kind of holding them down. I think it also adds a layer because it really paints ham as this person you know if we, if we think back to the final empire and we think back to the well of ascension ham was always a lover who found a home around fighters you know what i mean like he he was the leader from the front he was a protector first and foremost like he knew when to fight and when not to fight when to run away when to attack when to hold when to when to press but he's never been one to advocate for violence And so I think that's what's great here is that this is also a full circle moment where it's like, no, we're not going to attack. We should not attack. It goes against his kind of like moral principles, his moral base as well. Mm -hmm. So it feels right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, thanks, Ham. But then we move to Vin and she's right and comes to some really big conclusions in the face of Rune and Marsh, both reacting physically to what she's saying out loud. That metal is more than unalterable to ruin its blinding. And that's why he's been unable to search these caches. And as like the last log book in chapter 64 said, had a different minion basically go and do it for him. Yeah, this makes so much goddamn sense. And everything <laughs> just makes more sense. And I'm mad at how much it makes sense now. Because the Lord Ruler knew enough, you know? Like the yeah. Lord Ruler knew enough to, uh, to hold him at bay. How did he find out? Oh, he had the power of creation in his hands for like a couple yeah, of minutes right, or something. Right. Yeah, he was, he was a god, yeah. yeah, for for a hot sec. Yeah. Yeah. It is it is pretty great. It it's crazy to see to also have like these small moments of vindication for the Lord Ruler, right? Like Vindication? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even mean that one. Uh, <laughs> but to have to have these moments where it's like oh the lord ruler was right but there there is at least one problem with that which is that he still subjugated the ska it does bring into question how much overall 
influence ruin had over over the course of centuries and generations and like what he what he really brought into the system because we know of the terrible things that he of course encouraged the lord ruler to do to the terrorist people and things like that it's it does just bring into this question of like to what degree was the lord ruler really a strictly bad dude mm-hmm. and i don't think that he can be absolved of all of his sins but i think that there are a number that we can at the very least go well wasn't entirely your fault i i mean i think it depends on what sort of scope you're looking at it from i still think that scope is important yes for sure his entire goal his his primary goal was not anything to do with the actual like well-being of the people Mm -hmm. straight up it's just the preservation ha of the planet Mm mm-hmm the planet itself, not so. So the fact that he had had to had to subjugate his people to prevent them from over overturning his rule truly was in his mind a fair trade for saving the planet. And I yeah. yeah, whether or not that's a poisoned take is I don't know hard to. Hard to parse. In a it single it really is because there's there's the like what's the long term scope of of the choices made here? Because in reality, if the Lord Ruler thinks that he's immortal and subjugates a people to torture for a thousand years, but then is able to adjust the world again and fix the problems that he created in the first place when he picked up the power and then brings out a thousand years of like perpetual preservation without torture, you know, like what do you? What do you what do you say to that proposal? And I feel like that's kind of how he was approaching it is how to how do we stay the hand for as long as possible? Yeah, I mean, you, you kind of have to view it from the timeline of a god in that respect. Right. Entirely. And that's what makes it so difficult to, I think, really come to a conclusion to like a solid, solid piece of evidence on where where to land on the Lord Ruler. Mm hmm. So. Ruin demands through Marsh and that yeomen send the men to fight Vin's ocu- or Helen's occupying force of Coloss, despite the improbability of their win, and he bends to his will. We move to Elend, and he retreats, realizing the futility of their attempt to push through the ash, and that this is a way that he can avoid expending life. The the futility being the men of yeomen's, of course. This infuriates Ruin, because we jump back and forth like three times here, as Vin also feigns that she knows that Ruin has been after the ATM the whole time. There's a lot here that happens There's in a very a short amount of time. So I felt like the delivery of sort of dropping the idea that we knew the whole time that you were looking for the ATM was a little weak, but the fact that she came up with it on the fly and everything's so chaotic in the moment, like it, it makes it work and it makes it pretty believable. I do think I actually have a guess on where the ATM is. I don't know if that hmm. this is like the right place to guess that. What do you think? I think so. Okay. I think it's hidden basically as a core within each of the spikes. For the Inquisitors. And I know I had a guess similar to that previously, that there were like other spikes made entirely of ATM. So this is a departure from that, but is still kind of running on the same idea in that if you were to have a thin layer of metal around ATM, 
you probably only be able to detect that metal specifically. And if it passes through something, like it, it would just act as that type of metal, you know? And that I feel like could explain some changes that have been made within the ranks of the Inquisitors since the Lord Ruler died because the spikes have been forged in different ways and are probably entirely purely the metal that they're being, that they're using. And I I don't think that changes the strength. I think they talked about that, that the strength doesn't change based on the size of the spike, but just alters how quickly that power diminishes. I don't know. Yeah. I think it's established that the size of the spike doesn't matter as far as like power goes. Like it can still impart the same amount of power regardless of if it's a large spike or a small spike. But what matters is the size of the spike and how quickly that power leeches from itself. So a larger spike leeches slower than a small spike does. I think that's how they made that work. I believe that is in context to the... I believe the context provided there is in con it is relating most directly to the relationship that the spike has to ruin, not just strictly its power. Does that make sense? I think so. The big spike still loses power, but I think the reason so the the scene that you're referencing is the one that when we go back with Marsh and Marsh has killed the woman with the spike, but it doesn't matter. It was a tiny spike. It doesn't matter. It likely has lost most of its power, but that's okay because we don't want the power. We just want spike. So, mm-hmm. sorry, I'm just double checking here. Okay. So, yeah, size matters a little bit less, although it does have some implications. But the longer it is outside of a body, the weaker it is. Right. That is, that is like the I- top level rule. Yeah. And I think yeah. the idea was a larger spike could last longer outside of a body than a smaller spike could. Like they leached the power leached out of the smaller spike faster than the bigger one. I don't know. We're getting super into the weeds on a, on a guess that's only tangential. It is a prediction. So I think that that's interesting to think that ATM is, is connected here. And I think it's truly just like an ironic hiding place for the ATM. Like, it's not actually giving any power. It's just hidden in plain sight, so to speak. Well, kind of like, I mean, Vin's earring is coated in silver, right? Like, her bronze earring was coated in silver for a long time, but obviously that had flaked off. It was leafed. Oh, right. So, I forgot about that. Yeah, in a similar way. So, mm-hmm. yeah, interesting. Okay, we'll log that one as a prediction. I think that's reasonable. We'll talk about it in three weeks. So, okay, cool. Sounds good. So then Vin manages to pull off a great feat of thievery. She steals Marsh's vial of alimantic metals and turns Mistborn once again. Of course, this doesn't change her or anything, but she has the abilities, and so she's Mistborn once again. She throws her earring a piece a piece of metal that Kelsier said could be used to keep useful to keep for emergencies straight through his brother's head, Marsh. Which I find just like a little bit deliciously ironic. <laughs> like it's it's just this nice little touch because that's ultimately why part of the reason that she had decided to to keep it and she also thought that it could be useful in emergencies so as long as it was pierced through the ear right so she then pulls an incredible ploy here as well sending her small group of a thousand coloss uh she creates the chaos that she wanted a small battalion fighting against yeoman's men and he and that gets him to change his plans against ruin because she was trying to convince him you know of what was going on with the the coloss 
at large. It is really poetic about that earring, huh? Like I think even, so. I think it's even awesome. if it wasn't an allomantic spike, having that sort of note from Kelsier being used against his own brother is really something. So like that would have been a nice subtle payoff regardless. Not that, I mean, he comes back. So, you know, it is what it is, but uh, yeah, there, I, I really appreciated how, poetic that could have been i think there's something that you skipped what i skipped the fact that ruin just snapped his fingers and stole all the coloss or did you say did you mention that oh shit i did skip that entirely fuck so <laughs> but i i think it is important to talk about so i mean how do we want to go about this you know i mean like we said the one of the crazy things that happens inside of this is that rune shows more powers right and rune rips the coloss away from ellen's control and that you know changes the paradigm shifts shifts the paradigm <laughs> and uh yeah no i i really i really love it because it this whole this whole scene to some degree is a large testing of faith for yeoman in the sort of immediacy of like why should i be faithful to this thing that is causing so much pain and harm um mm-hmm. the this turns and that's kind of where the ploy comes in that we were just talking about a second ago but uh changing yeah. the paradigm it, it proves how necessary it was for him to act subtly because he need like because he can't interact with metals and clearly he needs atium for some reason still don't quite know that yet but he does because of that he has to act as subtly as possible and like nudge people and like work within the confines of this chessboard and like work with these pawns but really he can just like clap his hands a couple times and just own fucking everyone if mm-hmm. he wants to yeah i i think it's so it's such a great moment that happens because again cutting to ellen and seeing that get ripped away is just brutal. So I think yeah. one of the sort of mysteries for me, but something that didn't go unnoticed, is it doesn't seem like he took control of the Coloss within a specific area. He took control of whatever Elland had control of. Like he, t- he took the reins from Elland specifically. And that is evidenced by the fact that Vin maintained control of her thousand. Mm-hmm. which were within the same ranks, I think, right? Like they, they were, were the- they were separate buried under ash. So they were kind of obscure. Ah, okay. Yeah. Then that fucks that entire theory. Never mind. But I still think you're right about it. Grabbing Ellen's because those were the active Coloss at the time. Right. And so it rips it, rips it from him. Another small thing I think too, is that this goes to show just how effective ruin was in his sort of plotting over the course of the story, right? Because he has been letting Ellen and Vin get control of these, when in reality, he could have ripped them back whenever the hell he wanted. They posed no risk or threat to him. And in fact, they threatened more danger and more destruction. So it was just better for him to let them have them just in case, you know? And they've basically been moving them around for him. Yeah. And don't think it's gone unremembered. That Marsh was overlooking an army of 300,000? Something like that. Sometime in the middle of the book. Mm-hmm. So, uh... There's a couple. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a few. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just 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 a couple. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, Ouch. 
yeah, that's going to be going to be an issue. So moving back to linear time, uh, <laughs> Marsh gets up and begins to use Farrakemi, much to Vin's shock and chagrin. Marsh had saved her life at the end of the very first book and is here strangling it out of her. But then the mists swirl around her and channel into her and she pushes on Marsh's emotions and he cracks pretty significantly. He has this break. She sees into him and sees this deep pain and the joy that ruin was also bringing to him. And he runs. So I think I figured it out. Okay. What'd you figure out first? The only time that Vin has been able to channel the mists are also the only times that she's fought a Farrakimist. <laughs> Folks listening at home, this is why <laughs> correlation and causation do not good bedfellows make. <laughs> I don't know, man. It seems pretty ironclad to me. Yeah, that's that's fair. Is it? It it is. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I I'll give you I'll give you the the credit. I'll take yes. it. You know what? I all I want is a little bit, just a little bit of credit. Um, do you have any actual thoughts about the mists? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just let me rethink my entire idea, <laughs> real quick. Do Do you have further explanation on why you think that that would be the case while fighting ferrochemists? Because the mists hate ferrochemists. Just assholes apparently <laughs> okay i no i don't i feel like i feel like it has something to do with and i don't know okay i don't know i really don't know all right because it's Fair convenient because it's convenient you just accidentally described a duus ex <laughs> yep <laughs> okay cool well we can leave that there obviously we've got two more episodes for that to get resolved so we'll we'll figure that out soon with that the last thing to talk about this week before we get to the final logbook is vin flying out the willand is i'm not even drinking like there's no alcohol i just can't talk today ever since i fucked with my jaw at the beginning of the episode it's been fine but you know it's Anyway, Vin flies out the window to Elend, who is fighting, cleaving through as many colossus as he could before retreating briefly to attempt to make a plan when Vin lands next to him and tells him he can retreat into the city. And I think it's I, I think it's fair to say that our, our Sander Lanch has, has begun now. Now, now it's starting. Well, I not not right now, not like but like forty maybe, pages ago, or I, I, I mean, like it could have even this you could have considered like the end of Spook's chapter into this. Like it could mm. be, we could be in the middle of it. Really, I mean, who's to say? It's fluid. It's fluid. As, as Sandra Lanch Avalanche, you know, just it it happens. It cascades, and then it takes a little break, and it goes into the trees, and then it gets past the trees, and it goes faster. And yeah, must be how it mm. works. It is. Needless to say, cool scene with Ellen fighting the Kelos. I'm nothing crazy. It's a pretty quick cut again, but it's where we end our chapter with a couple. Get a cool, like, I don't know, cheesy phrase to end this chapter on from Vin. What does she say? <laughs> oh, I got delayed by an Inquisitor and a Dark God. So now hustle. I'll see if I can get distract them and get. I'll go see if I can distract some of those Kelos. Yeah. What a phrase to end the chapter on, Crossland. It's mm-hmm. like you got to choose the places we stop. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> Leave you on a nice little soft cliffhanger here for the week. 
at least someone's net life isn't hanging in the balance or anything dramatic like that. You know, like at least it's not, it's not something like that where someone's maybe dead. You mean like, the oh, wait, I did that Empire? last week. <laughs> the whole army, all of our characters. But yes, you did do that to us last week. Yeah, I literally did that last week. So, yeah. Yep. All right. Well, PJ, sweet. With that, that's we've we've got just our logbook. So, logbook mm-hmm. here. Inquisitors had little chance of resisting ruin. They had more spikes than any of his other hemolurgic creations, and that put them completely under his domination. Yes, it would have taken a man of supreme will to resist ruin even slightly while bearing the spikes of an inquisitor. I think we have that man. You do? I think we know that man. You think we know that man? Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You think you think it's the man that's Martian been boy? tricking? It's all a long con. He's gonna go ahead and kill our main character for the long con. <laughs> I can I can take control back whenever I want. I'm Marsh. So you think Marsh is in it for the long con, huh? Okay. Mm. Cool. Yeah, no. Mm. Mm. I think I think the idea is that he'll at a dire moment, not that we haven't already had one, but he'll exert a force of will and kind of fuck up a little bit of one of Ruin's strides. That's my guess. Okay. All right. Sounds legit. Mm. I dig it. Cool. Well, with that, since we are skipping PJ's predictions and holding them until the end, our own Hero of Ages wrap-up episode that we're doing by ourselves, we, we're going to hang on to this. That said, if you have any questions that you want to submit for PJ and I to answer, please do so to the email or to any of the social medias that I have listed. Send them to us. That way I can kind of filter through them for the end of the series and make mention of any topics you might want us to tackle. So, cool. Next week... We read chapters 66 through 75. 66? 66 through 75. It seems like a lot of chapters staring at it. You know, that's 10 chapters, but because we read through, right? So, but it's only 72 pages. So it's not even that crazy of a reading. It's very similar to this week's reading. It's just, okay. it's actually shorter than, no, it's not quite shorter, shorter than last week's reading, but should be should be a fun time so that's where we'll leave you for this week thank you as ever to tim and andrew for helping us keep our show going you can check all of the links in our show notes you can find our schedule patreon previous episodes websites all of our social media accounts in one very convenient location Yes, and very soon we will also have our Atomic Pylon website up so that you can check out all of the other shows that we've got coming out variously. It should be a very exciting time. We are super duper, duper pumped for everything else that we have coming out. Again, like PJ had mentioned, you can find us at Words Whiskey Pod on Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, Words and Whiskey Show at gmail.com, patreon.com forward slash Words and Whiskey, and t shirts on T Public. If you're too lazy to search for any of those individual things, you can find them in the convenient link. We have them for you. you all you have to do is a click. You can join our Discord by joining our Patreon as well, as well as Devil's Cuts. We release basically 20 minutes ish, 20 to 30 minute episodes weekly that kind of accompany these as warm ups and some fun conversation about kind of how our week's going or other topics icebreaker submitted and any long bits that we cut from the regular episodes as well so if we ever go on a random tirade about something and decide yeah not main feed worthy it ends up in those so come check it out yes you should 
and chat with us on our Discord. Yes, yeah. we spend most of our day on there. It's true. With that, we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.